welcome to Objections to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, April 1st, and it will begin airing on Sunday, April 4th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? Pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good. Um, Got hot. It's getting cold again. Yeah, we're in the third winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, watching those COVID numbers go up nationwide feels pretty scary. Yeah, I'm hoping that the I'm hoping the vaccination efforts continue to catch up, or they need to start to outpace like the new cases because I think things are opening so much faster than people are getting shots, and it's it's really backwards. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's different because I feel like everybody's, I just don't want people to move too fast. You know, it's like, it's making me a little apprehensive because everybody's feeling so free and it's like, hold on, buddy, not just yet. Like give it about a good another month and a half and then people can start, you know, being a little bit more friendly, if you will. So this week we'll be discussing New York city ending qualified immunity for police officers New York State legalizing marijuana, the Biden administration announced an offshore wind energy project, and the Sarah Everett story. So let's kick off today's episode with our national news segment. Uh, Jasmine, you have the floor. All right. So this it's not really national because it is specific. The way it's written is specific to New York City. Uh, it's This article is by from the Gothamist. The person who wrote it is Christopher Robbins, and it came out on March 31st. So on this past Wednesday, yesterday, as of recording, the governor signed historic marijuana legalization, um, and the state legislature passed it overnight. Um, The sponsors of the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, or the MRTA, say that it could be 16 to 18 months before New York will be uh, before people in New York will be able to walk into a store and buy legal weed. But as of right now, marijuana is legal for adults and many criminal penalties connected to its use have been removed. So adults 21 and older can smoke or consume marijuana anywhere it is currently legal to use tobacco. You can also have up to three ounces, either at home or in public. In several months, when the Office of Cannabis Management sets up the permanent regulations for the cannabis economy, New Yorkers will be able to have up to five pounds of pot at home. Um, Still, while smoking tobacco is prohibited in city parks, so is smoking marijuana. However, smoking marijuana is no longer a criminal offense. It's a civil infraction like littering. So you could face a $25 fine and up to 20 hours of community service if you're found guilty. Um, Minors in possession of marijuana face a civil penalty of $50 and drug education, but there are no criminal consequences and the penalties do not escalate with the number of offenses. It's still a violation to sell any amount of marijuana unlawfully under the MRTA, but harsh penalties for selling lower amounts have been removed. So this, um, this quote is from Eli Northrup, who's policy counsel for the Bronx, Bronx Defenders. And Eli says, 
because there's no regulated market, you would be subject to a criminal violation and a fine of up to $250 if you sell any amount under three ounces. Anything more than that is a misdemeanor. So um, one of the questions answered in the article is, can an NYPD officer stop me and search me because they smell weed? And the answer is no, the MRTA does not allow the police to use the odor of marijuana as a reason for a stop and search. In 1994, the NYPD made 3,000 arrests for smoking marijuana in public. In the year 2000, they made 50,000 such arrests. In the mid-2000s, that number dropped to about 30,000 a year. The vast majority of those arrested, 85%, I'm going to say that again, 85% of those arrested for smoking marijuana in public were Black or Latino. Even as marijuana arrests dipped to historic lows over the past few years, the racial disparities still exist. In an interview with PIX11 on Wednesday, NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea said it was, quote, troubling that New Yorkers will now be able to smoke marijuana outside because the department fields so many complaints about the smell of marijuana. He says, I don't know what we're going to be telling New Yorkers when they call up and say, There's people smoking in front of my house or apartment building, or I take my kids to a parade, whether it's on Eastern Parkway or on Fifth Avenue, and there are people smoking marijuana next to me as I try to enjoy the parade. As for Shay's concerns, Northrop countered, I don't know how that will be any different from people complaining about secondhand smoke. Northrop added, I think what the commissioner is really worried about is that officers can no longer use that odor as a pretext to stop, search, and harass people. It's the number one basis we see for police searching cars, searching people, and when I say searching cars, searching people, it's people of color. And that tool has been removed from their toolbox. They're going to have to do actual police work. Um, Another question answered in the article is, can the police pull me over and say they smell marijuana and use that to charge me with a DUI? And the answer is yes. The police can use the smell of marijuana to determine if someone is driving while intoxicated. Unlike alcohol, where there's a legal limit, there is no limit with marijuana. So any level of use while operating a motor vehicle is a criminal misdemeanor. If you must ride in a car with marijuana, you should treat it like an open container of alcohol and store it in the trunk. So this is an aside from the article, but they're no longer able to use the smell of marijuana as a pretext to like search like your entire car. So if you have it in your trunk, you would be in the clear. Um, Until the MRTA sets up the regulatory system for growing marijuana, home growing is still technically unlawful but there are no criminal penalties for it. Also, like your landlord or co-op board may have their own prohibitions on this activity, just like they may have prohibitions on smoking cigarettes indoors, so you should check your lease. Um, If you live in NYSHA housing, so that's the New York State, uh, not New York State, New York City Housing Authority, like um, government housing, Can you smoke weed indoors? And the answer is no, because it's technically illegal still because marijuana is still federally prohibited 
And in 2018, NYSHA banned cigarette smoking everywhere except for designated areas. Um, this was a big one on, on the top of my mind was I was, well, I have never been arrested, but the question is, I was arrested for smoking marijuana a few years ago. Will that arrest now go away? And the answer is yes. Everything that is now legal under the MRTA will be automatically expunged. Um, so if you were arrested and convicted of selling weed, according to Northrop, if you were convicted of criminal sale in the fifth degree or fourth degree, meaning anything less than 25 grams, your conviction will automatically be expunged. Um, you can still be fired for using weed in the same sense that, you know, say if you're drinking on the job or you're drunk on the job, you can be fired. Um, and the last question is, will those drug convictions prevent me from getting a license in this new weed economy? No, and this was very deliberate on the part of the legislature. Only convictions for fraud and unlawful, unlawful business practices will prohibit New Yorkers from obtaining a license. The MRTA's main sponsor in the assembly named Crystal, Crystal Peoples Stokes was asked point blank on the floor if people convicted of drug crimes would be able to participate in the legal cannab cannabis economy. Yes, she replied and pointed to the 10 different licenses the MRTA will eventually hand out. Cultivators, processors, distributors, dispensaries, consumption sites, cooperatives, deliverers, nurseries, and micro-businesses, which will operate like micro-breweries. There will be a lot of opportunities for them, People Stokes said. So yeah, like... This is What You Need to Know About Legal Marijuana in New York by Christopher Robbins. So we're starting off the, the show with some good news. Yes, I'm actually happy to be a New Yorker today. <laughs> no, not like it's, I'm not like that every day, but I'm just saying, well, there are some days I hate it, but um, this is definitely good news. I think that um, it's a move in the right direction. I think it's interesting that a lot of people are saying that Cuomo did this to get himself some good light in the midst of all this um, bullshit that is coming to light about the way that he did what he did, does what he do. I don't think it's a one-time or two-time off thing with this guy, but nonetheless, you know, not to take any energy away from what has happened. I think this is great for restorative justice. Um, it's kind of a model for other states to implement these laws um, to make sure that they are doing some restorative justice around this topic. It's not just about us, you know, being able to smoke and having the freedom to live how we want to live. This is about people getting records expunged that have stopped them from getting jobs, getting houses, getting loans, um, and moving forward in life. You know, I'm sure the process of restorative justice is something that we have to make sure it's very clear to the people who need it the most, because the language could be you know, difficult. And some people won't even seek it if they if it, they make it too difficult to happen. So I think it's a big part on this is really sharing what that process looks like for people who need to go through it to actually get their records expunged and have that freedom again to be able to move through life without a conviction for this. And I think that's really important for us to highlight. You know, um, it's, it's a great day and it's definitely a day to celebrate, but we need to be conscientious about this actually serving the people that it's designed to serve so that we can really see people's lives be turned around by this. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a huge win for a lot of communities that have historically, um, you know, drug policing laws have like explicitly been used to to marginalize and attack. Um, you know, like all those tapes of Nixon. I, I mean, I definitely read about this. I don't know exactly what it was said, but essentially it's like for a fact, the war on drugs was like created um, as a way to suppress people of color and black people um, in many ways. So um, yeah, this is a, a huge win for a lot of people uh, in New York. Um, you know, their weed is not more dangerous than alcohol. Um, and it's actually a lot less dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, not, not for nothing, you know, and I'm someone like I, I do drink, like I'm not someone who's a mm-hmm. non-drinker, but mm-hmm. if you just look at the numbers, like the number of crimes and, you know, things that people have done that have actually, you know, led to deaths or injury mm-hmm. or severe illness, alcohol is high up there Mm -hmm. i think people just forget because it's legal but yeah yeah Yeah. i mean the the rep that weed has it's it's really ridiculous and i think the way shay was talking about oh what are what are we gonna do if people are at a parade and someone is smoking (laughs) like please shut up like i don't even i don't even want to dignify that like it's a real legitimate concern Mm mm-hmm that the yeah. police are so worried about like, Oh my God, it's like, you just don't have your excuse to randomly harass black people anymore. And you're pissed about it. Yeah. yeah there's many more changes coming in that way too, but um, mm-hmm. like, this is definitely something that we need to look at in the broader perspective of people having, you know, that, that monkey off their back. Right. Like it's, it's really awful when you feel like, Oh my gosh, you know, there are so many reasons for them to hunt me, if you will. I've heard many people say that. And this is now one of those things that all of us are going to have to adjust to, you know, in many different ways. Um, it's a cultural norm for many people. And it's um, one of the things that's looked down on in society for many others. But I think the generalized understanding is that it shouldn't be criminalized. Like people should not be criminalized for what they do. Yeah. It seems like that part about if you're in NYSHA, like you still can't smoke in, in your own home. I think it's, a, I think that's unfortunate because it, it reminds me of how, like, even with the, the rules they have about drinking outside now, it's like, it's only illegal if you're a certain type of person that doesn't have the means to have say like a backyard or a patio or something where you can be outside and be drinking then it's a crime when you do it and it's sort of similar with like nisha it's like if you are if you happen to be someone that lives in like public housing you don't have the same right to truly be at home with like the decisions you can make in your space the way somebody else might you know but they also have the same rules for smoking cigarettes right yeah they have the same so it is similar to like i guess if you're renting and Mm -hmm. you might have a personal like if your landlord has a specific rule Mm -hmm. but if you like own your own place then you can do whatever you want yeah i i agree jasmine i think that there's definitely um issues like that involved i but my only alternative argument would be that things like cigarette smoke um, like I guess marijuana smoke as well, what it might affect the surrounding community that also has a right to, you know, a clean, the cleaner air environment. So I think, I think 
as far as smoking goes, like, like that is something that might affect others as well. So I think it's a trickier, trickier topic where again, but if you are wealthy enough, of course, you get the right, the privilege and the right to make those decisions for yourself. So I think, yeah, there's a lot fewer eyes on what you're doing and like how you're doing it. And like this, I think a lot of this is just about smoking. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure specifically if it's like, other forms of consuming cannabis are also included in that where like you can't mm. have it in your home like yeah. as edibles and so because it still is you know the drug it's not the oh it's right it's the federal it. it's right. the whole like the drug is federally not legal mm, right okay yep that's so, a good you point know, that's yeah. you know and I, I think you know with smoking that's one thing because it, it is in the air and it affects other people but in the story that I read, it actually said that um, there's also um, a, a clause in there about growing it legally at home as well. I think that you are able to have like five or six plants in your home as well. Um, the story that I had researched on this, which is really different, um, right? Because people don't think about it in in terms of um, people growing marijuana plants within their own facilities or creating the atmosphere to do that, you know? Um, which I think is a really interesting turn because you never really know, you know, how people get it. Of course, it's going to be completely taxed and it's going to be a whole nother market. You know, it's going to bring billions of dollars in taxes and revenue. But ultimately, I think that's an interesting thing as well that, you know, it does have the same rules, as you said, like as cigarettes, but it also kind of has a different clause to it, making it make, I think it will highlight more of the medicinal uses of marijuana over time, which you know, I think is something that is really growing with people's thoughts about how marijuana is used and consumed today. All right. So thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Um, Definitely a good day and definitely good news. I love it when we can start the show off with good news. We're going to go ahead and jump into our first music break today. Bringing in Aries season with the heat. This is a rapper from New York named Andy Maneo. And this song is I'm Coming In Hot. We'll be right back. I don't do the most, but I do a lot. I'ma make a toast, cause we still alive. No big, I feel like Pac. I shoot a shot. I'm coming in hot. Steamer. I bring the fire, but you never seen her. I testify, I don't need a subpoena. They want my soul better go to Korea. I love my dog just like I'm Peter. Gotta protect them. I made the call it, but just like I'm rapping. I know we left here, now we back together, but I guess that is better now. Later than never, like, mm, what's happening? I'ma need y'all quit asking when. Me and my wife gonna have some kids. Right now, we just practicing. Practicing. Teacher said, quit rapping, man. That gonna hurt my average. I said, thank God I ain't average. Yeah, I'm a bright young man. Kill the GPA, GPA and the BPM. BPM. Look, we on. So say what you say, cause that's A with Lecrae. From the A train to the A, I'm coming in hot. I don't do the most, but I do a lot. I'ma make a toast, cause we still alive. No big, I feel like Pac. I shoot a shot. I'm coming in hot. 
Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Emily coming in with our world news segment. All right. Yes. So for today's world news, I'm going to be talking about the Sarah Everard story, uh, which has been circulating widely for about a month now. Um, But we haven't had a chance to talk about it on the show yet. And it's an important story with a lot of different like aspects and facets. So I'm going to lay it out chronologically to start. Um, And I use mostly the New York Times, various New York Times articles from the last month for the research, Um, occasionally some other things that I'll reference as well. But okay. So on March 3rd of of last month, um, a 33-year-old marketing executive named Sarah Everard was walking home from a friend's house in London when she disappeared. She left around 9 p.m. and it should have taken her a little under an hour to get home. Uh, She was last seen about a half hour after leaving her friend's place. Uh, As Amanda Taub writes on a March 14th New York Times article, Sarah did, quote, everything she was supposed to do. She took a longer route that was well lit and populated. She wore bright clothes and shoes she could run in. She checked in with her boyfriend to let him know when she was leaving, but that was not enough. Uh, In the week after she went missing, the police said over 750 houses in South London had been searched by hundreds of officers while also asking for witnesses to come forward. Uh, On the evening of Tuesday, March 9th, a 48-year-old police officer named Wayne Cousins was arrested on suspicion of kidnapping in connection with Sarah's disappearance, uh, but was later held on suspicion of murder when, on March 10th, the detectives investigating the case announced that human remains had been found in a wooded area in Kent, an area to the southeast of London. They were unable to identify the remains at the time they announced the findings. Uh, the police officer was also being held for an unrelated claim of indecent exposure, which occurred on February 28th at a fast food restaurant and which did not lead to the officer's suspension for some reason. Uh, the officer's main job was patrolling Uh, what's called diplomatic premises, uh, and he was not on duty at the time of the disappearance. Sarah's disappearance sparked a movement on social media as women came forward to share their own fearful experiences of walking alone. The Times summarized the outpouring, quote, online women offered countless testimonies about facing catcalls, unwanted attention, threats, and assaults in public spaces. As Ms. Everard's name trended on Twitter in Britain on Thursday, Stories included recollections of anxious walks, of being followed in the streets and having to run, and of being harassed in a public space. Women also listed measures they felt compelled to take to mitigate risks, such as sharing with other women the addresses of places they go at night, keeping keys clenched in their hands as a weapon, choosing better lit routes in the hope of avoiding danger, and having an app that sends a text with the person's location when it detects a scream. Uh, freelance writer Marissa Bate tweeted, quote, Sarah's disappearance feels so close to the bone because every time women walk alone after dark, however subconsciously, we carry the fear that something awful might happen. Joanna Montgomery, uh, described as a 43-year-old London resident, tweeted, uh, headphones at lowest volume, keys clenched in my hand, rape alarm in my pocket, fearful of the dark at 8.30 p.m. Angel Crawley of the Scottish National Party, uh, I may, that may be Angela, I apologize, um, is quoted as saying, quote, how often have we said to a friend on the way home, be safe, text me when you get home. The fear alone should tell us we have a problem. 
On Thursday, March 11th, organizers of a vigil for Sarah planned for that Saturday, March 13th. Uh, the organizers were titled Reclaim These Streets, announced that they had been told by the police that the gathering was not legal under COVID restrictions, and they were threatened with fines. The following day, a court upheld the, un the unlawfulness of the event. Uh, People Magazine reported that Reclaim These Streets also created a fundraiser that raised 320,000 pounds, around $445,000 for women's causes. Um, on Friday, March 12th, the body that had been found was identified as Sarah Everard, and police officer Wayne Cousins was officially charged with Sarah's kidnapping and murder. On Saturday, March 13th, the th uh, thousands had gathered at Clapham Common, the park where Sarah had last been seen alive, quote, despite police warnings that the event would be unlawful because of coronavirus restrictions. The space had become a memorial that even Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge, was seen visiting earlier in the day on Saturday. The Times reported that the event that took place morphed from a vigil into an anti-gender violence rally. The Reclaim These Streets organizers had eventually conceded to a doorstep vigil, but people still gathered at the park. Signs read, End Violence Against Women, and she was only walking home. And as evening approached, the crowd chanted, Shame on you, arrest your own, and who do you protect at the police officers who tried to break up the crowd. Several women were arrested at the event and handcuffed by the police in scenes that drew outrage from a wide spectrum spectrum ranging from feminist organizations. Oh, I'm sorry. Also, this is a quote as well um, from the, I believe the Times. Um, so the scenes that drew outrage from a wide spectrum ranging from feminist organizations to conservative politicians. Other protesters, some unmasked, engaged in tense face-offs with the police. But on Saturday evening, the response by the force threatened to throw the Metropolitan Police into crisis. Top officials, including London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, and Home Secretary Priti Patel called the response upsetting and unacceptable and said they had asked for a report into it. Quote, in a picture that went viral on social media, hundreds of people held up their smartphone lights in tribute to Ms. Everard as they faced a line of police officers standing in the park. In another one, an officer appeared to straddle a masked protester who was later arrested. And now this week, the New York Times reported, reported on March 30th that, quote, the official body investigating police conduct at a London vigil for Sarah Everard, who was killed while walking home this month, has determined that the city's police acted appropriately at the event, according to a report released on Tuesday. But the organizers of the event were widely critical of the report, and some local lawmakers said another review was warranted. Uh, so there is a lot to talk about with this case. Um, you know, not least of which is the fact that a police officer uh, was was arrested and responsible um, for it. I guess allegedly, I don't know, has been charged with it. Um, there's another aspect that's all really important that, as always, um, it Sarah Ever, you know, the fact that Sarah Everard was white, um, and it does feel like the media storm has historically kicked up exclusively when it's white women and children that have gone missing or are murdered. Um, a BBC report from earlier this week said, quote, Mina Smallman, the mother of two women found dead in North London, has expressed her sympathy for the family of Sarah Everard and questioned why the deaths of her daughters received comparatively little attention at the time. Nicole Smallman and Biba Henry were killed in a park in Wembley last June. Two officers have been arrested and suspended after alleged allegations they took selfies with the bodies. 
asked yeah, why. Yeah, I remember that. Asked why her case had not received the level of outrage as Sarah Everard, she said, "Other people have more kudos in this world than people of color." Yeah, it's it's a bad one. Um, and I honestly I hadn't heard about it, and that I think just goes to say again, um, just what what gains attention in the media and what doesn't. Um, and another aspect that I found really interesting of this whole story. Um, was a March 25th New York Times article by Alicia Haridasani, Haridasani Gupta, uh, that asked, quote, misogyny fuels violence against women. Should it be a hate crime? Experts say the everyday harassment women have learned to put up with the catcalling and lewd gestures connects directly with more uh, serious abuses. Um, and I also want to note another aspect as well, that there's a long history of women as a group being punished when a woman goes missing or is murdered, where there's curfews in place, you know, we're told, oh, you know, you have to be more careful, you have to do this, you have to do that. And then the men who were actually responsible, you know, the group of men, in the sense that a man was responsible for the crime, you know, they don't have to change their behavior at all. Um, so there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot going on with this. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts, ladies. Again, another story about shady cops. Okay, it doesn't matter where you live in the world. State violence against people is a real fucking thing. It's not something people make up in their heads or that happen only in certain neighborhoods or to certain people. State violence against people is a real thing. So I think we need to just make sure we highlight that because that's what the story is about. Um, in regards to how it's been shared and how it's been reached, I hadn't really heard about the story, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't, you know, reached across the pond, if you will. But it's, it's fucking awful because it's one of those things. It's like, where do you feel safe as a woman ever? Ever in any atmosphere for any reason, whether you're trying to speak your mind, whether you're trying to walk home at night, whether you're trying to raise your children or trying to protect them. You know, or even just fucking trying to get ahead in life and society, trying to move up in your career or just fucking trying to do your job. You know, like it's, it just really shows, you know, how vulnerable we all really are. And I've walked home from working at bars. You know, I was a bartender for many years in New York City. And, you know, to God's grace, I've never had anything happen to me. But that is not the story for a lot of people. Um, so that just really took me back to those nights, you know, when I would walk with my keys in my hand or, you know, something to protect myself to get about six, seven blocks home, um, you know, to save money, not buy Uber or just whatever, you know, need some fucking air. But, you know, it's just a really fucked up story in, in regards to where can we be safe? Like who protects us, but us? Um, yeah, that's where I'm at with it right now. Yeah, I saw a lot of about this story on social media, like mostly on Twitter, and some of the images of what was happening at the vigils and events that were in support of her or, you know, saying, you know, who do you protect, et cetera, like the way the police were reacting, it was very shocking to see them react that way, especially towards a group of people who are mostly white, it seemed. Um you know, not that, that I'm not trying to imply that that makes it okay, but it just shows you like the depth of the commitment to like yeah, protecting each other and the state over everything. Like even if you otherwise think that you're part of a somewhat protected class, 
when the rubber meets the road and you're really trying to buck up against their authority, like they will body slam you too. Like they will come down on you as well. Um, and yeah. it's really hard. Like my heart goes out to her family, her loved ones. Cause it's, I think we've, the three of us on this show, I'm sure we've all been there where it's just so ingrained in you to be hyper vigilant and to always think like, Whenever I'm walking home, if someone is walking behind me, you know, I'm very careful to be like, you know what, I'm going to slow down and kind of adjust and like let them pass me, like to see like, are they following me or not? Like to the point where it's not even like a conscious thing that I do. It's just, it's, it's, it's really something to walk through the world constantly thinking subconsciously that you are a potential victim of that type of violence. And for someone to be doing all those things that we're all so ingrained with doing as women, and then this still happened to her by someone who's allegedly there to protect you, it's really, it's jarring, it's sad, it's awful, it's not that surprising, it's so many terrible things. Yeah, um, yeah, I've absolutely, there's, there's, in, it's so ingrained in me, these behaviors that I think it's stuff like this that makes you realize like, wow, like, you know, men don't think about these things. And I've had conversations with men where it's like, I know guys who other people who've worked at bars that are, you know, getting out at two, three, four in the morning that like walk home, like while watching like TV on their phone, which first of all, like you, you know, don't like, that's just stupid in general. Cause you can't see literally where you're going, but like, just so it's so not a concern, like the, uh, you know, no one's going to attack me. That's like, that's the, you know, it's not in their mind. Whereas like, I, I would never have my headphones on it after dark, right? Like I need to be totally aware of what's going on around me. Um, I know that I know a lot of women who, you know, it's actually interesting, try and be on their phone with someone so that the person will know if something goes yeah, wrong. That's me. The phone. that's me. I call right. people in other States. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's to, interesting. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It does it's interesting though, because I actually remember learning that that's actually, it means you're less aware of your surroundings when you do that. Um, and it actually makes you more of a target in some ways because you're not paying as close attention to the sounds around you and things like that. So it's, it's tricky though, right? Like, because I, I've seen, I've heard both things like that, but it's also the fact that we're all thinking about those as options, right? Just to, as protection guy and the men I've talked to, right. And I'm sure it's not, you know, not, I'm sure there's men who are worried about that. You know, they're just like, there are women out there who aren't thinking about these things, but in terms of just the general, general things that we've had to learn to protect ourselves and that we're taught, right. Again, yeah, we're you're, taught. I was just going to say, it's like, you're brought up as yes. a girl to anticipate someone victimizing you. And that mm -hmm. doesn't happen with boys the mm -hmm. same way. Cause like a lot of my guy friends have been, I've never, you know, so far I have never been physically attacked or mugged. I know a lot of men that have, and knowing them, it's like, they're guys who they will be kind of like oblivious and how they move through the world. And I remember in college in one of my classes, Oh, it was, I don't know what the study was, but it was saying like, there's, it wasn't in the U S it was in France that, you know, the numbers for like violent assaults, most of the victims would be men, but the perception would be that women are more likely to be victimized. But then it was like, 
trying to figure out like, could it be the fact that women are socialized in such a way from an early age to say, it's this late at night, so I'm just gonna stay the night here instead of walking out by myself. And a man is like, I'll be fine. And then they go out not even thinking. And then they get like mugged or stabbed up or whatever. Like it's that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, I would have to find it, but it's like it wouldn't surprise me because it starts early where you're mm-hmm. trained to think of yourself as a potential victim or like don't drink too much. Yeah, if you leave, if you leave your drink, get a new drink. Like mm-hmm. my grandmother would tell me stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. you know, don't leave your drink sick, sitting out, and you know there's this whole other chunk of the population that uh, no one ever says anything like that to them. No one tells them how about your mind. Yeah. How about you don't roofie a girl's drink, right? Like that's the thing that's so ingrained in our culture where we, we have to bear the burden of protecting ourselves just as a culture, right? Like sure. Like, you know, we might know that that's wrong, like in our gut, but like, I'm the one who has to watch my drink. I can't trust anyone else to do this for right. me. I have to, wh- what were you wearing, right? Like, were you, were right. you was it suggestive? I, I, Did you like, it's right. give them any yeah. ideas it's or like, anything? Yeah. Right. It's like the male violence is treated like it's this inevitability, yep. like this yep. force that is just omnipresent and it's always there and you have to always be on the defensive. Mm-hmm. Like it's just in the ether and there's nothing you can do to stop it from happening. And there's no counter argument either. There's no one saying, like you said earlier, Emily, don't do that. Or, you know, be mindful that this is the experience of your sisters or your friends, you know, like protect them too. You know, even in a male, female, like, you know, just friendly relationship. I wonder about, do they think about that, that that happens to us? you know, even in platonic relationships, like I don't feel some men were more protective than others, but like, even in those relationships, do they think that those things happen to their friends or their sisters or, you know? I just don't think it's talked about enough. I think I'm sure there are segments of the population of like men out there that have learned these things from their, you know, relationships and experiences with women and others, but like, it's not, they have to actively almost seek that education often. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not put on them in the way that our education, you know, if you will, is put on us. And and again, like I mentioned this when I was telling the story, but I don't know if any, if you guys have watched the, um, the, the Ripper documentary about the Yorkshire Ripper in the seventies in, in England, but like these women were going, there was a serial killer out there attacking women and the, you know, the cops were like, okay, we're going to start having curfews for women, right? Like you just stay home late cause it's dangerous. And it's like the men were just still free to go out there and do whatever they wanted. Right. Because it's the burden is on the women, um, to protect themselves. And there's a long history of that. Um, and it sucks. <laughs> it sucks. And it's, it's horrifying. And again, like, just like we said, it's not enough, right? Like Sarah, like she just walked home alone. She was wearing bright clothing. She went on populated areas and it like wasn't enough. I know there was some bullshit I saw where they were putting like, oh, we're going to station police in the bars for added protection. Right. Like yeah. an officer murdered her. Right. They're the ones that's fucking killing people out here. Like, what are y'all trying to do? You know, they I don't know what the stats are in the UK, but they're probably not that far off from the ones here where those are some of the main ones that go home and beat up on their wives and girlfriends, you know, and, you know, just, I know we're talking a lot about men and women, but there's a lot of people who might not be men or women. And because of how they present, yeah, 
you know, like they are seen as a target as well. It's like mm-hmm. if you if you don't present as like a strong cis guy, yeah, you are a visible target, and you have to be like hyper vigilant about, you know, just this this evil force, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's always there. It's always like stalking you it's very creepy but you just you just get so used to it it's like breathing like you go outside once you take once you go outside of your home it's like all bets are off well thank you so much emily for bringing light to this story um definitely i think something everybody can really um just really feel i know this one really touched my heart a lot and not just because we're three badass women running this show, but the reality that where is it safe, right? Just where is it safe? So we are going to take a breath of air because we need it right now. Um, I got a nice jazzy bop for you this Sunday. This is Jalen Satoy with Foreplay. We'll be right back. That you keep close just to blow the steam like Stanley You don't want to have to plunge in the back Praying people in the front don't figure where you at I get that You should pray for the feeling, I don't miss that I was stuck for a while, I'll admit it The same damn thing that you feeling, man, I get it But I'm past that now I sent this crown, now I mix no Sprite Only sit brown when I'm cool with my niggas So bitch, go figure, it's that kind of night, alright? I love you Things that cross my mind while I'm by myself Suicide for the money, we just call it being hungry nowadays. Every nigga getting paid, just a couple getting laid. If the chest fall right and the dick all right, could I stay all night? I can lie pretty well. Cause you posting all my songs. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment. Um, this information was drawn from a story on ABC News by Luke Barr and also one from the New York Times by Jeffrey Mays and Ashley Southall. So the city of New York moved to end qualified immunity, making it the first city in the United States to do so. Qualified immunity is the practice of not being able to file a civil lawsuit against a government official performing his or her official duties unless they, quote, clearly establish statutory or constitutional 
rights of which a reasonable person would have known, end quote. So that basically means it shields state and local police from liability unless they're violated um, from any charges when they are doing their job, per se. So the NYPD is the largest police force in the United States with some 36,000 officers. This move comes days ahead of the start of the former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin's murder trial, the killing of George Floyd while a police custody sparked international protests and the debate over police reform across the United States last summer. City Council Speaker Corey Johnson made a statement saying that the practice of qualified immunity was rooted in the nation's systemic racism. Here's the quote. Qualified immunity was established in 1967 in Mississippi to prevent freedom riders from holding public officials liable even when when they broke the law. Rooted in the nation's history of systemic racism, qualified immunity denied freedom riders justice and has been used to deny justice to victims of police abuse for decades. It should have never been allowed, and I'm proud that we took action today to end it here in NYC, end quote. The city council said in a statement that it passed a bill creating a local civil right protecting the city's residents against unreasonable search and seizure, excessive force, and a ban on the use of qualified immunity as a defense. The qualified immunity measure was one of five measures adopted by the New York City Council aimed at police reforms. The city council was voted to also voted to allow the Civilian Complaint Review Board to investigate police with a history of bias and racial complaints, issue quarterly reports on traffic stops, and to transfer the authority of granting and suspending press passes from the NYPD to the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. But the centerpiece of the package was the bill intended to make it harder for officers to deploy a qualified immunity defense to shield themselves from lawsuits. It passed by a vote of 37 to 11. In essence, the bill establishes a local right, the protection against unreasonable searches and the use of excessive force. Um, Officers cannot use this qualified immunity defense anymore, so practically it will ultimately make them not do these practices because they don't have that sort of protection under the local laws. But there are still federal and state statutes that we have to consider. But over the years, the rule has been expanded by the courts, and it now requires plaintiffs to prove that officers violated a constitutional right, which could be so hard, right? Like, how can you prove that they violated that? Um, And it's often been established in looking at the past or previous cases that that officer was involved in. So this is a high legal hurdle that critics say is often impossible to overcome and allows officers to escape accountability all the time for their actions. Research from the city council found that at least 180 lawsuits over the last three years in which qualified immunity or its equivalent was invoked on behalf of the police department. A judge approved its use in about 100 cases. Um, So this is definitely also a historical move from New York. New York is lit right now. Okay, so much shit going on, even with the bullshit Cuomo and whoever is de Blasio. But the reality is, this is big in police reform. You know, we are, we have all been chanting, you know, a lot of people have been chanting, let's not say we defund the police, but it's like, I think a lot has been not been done because there hasn't been uh, ways to make these laws shift. And in order to not, I don't know, offend the people that make them, I guess that's probably a really bad way to say that. But Basically, what is happening now is this is an actual effective move 
towards taking some power back and actually making people accountable for the bullshit that they do in these streets. Um, it's going to take a while, I think, for it to really be implemented in a way that we will see. But as New York City should be the leaders in progressive politics, because we are one of the forward thinking um, states in this country. So this, you know, this is long overdue, but I definitely think this is a model for other states to start implementing some real reform that will shift the tide um, about how these situations go. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's uh, it's huge. I also, I'm ashamed to say I had no idea where qualified immunity came from. I'm not surprised um, that it's it's so fucked up, right? Like, obviously. It was, it was t- completely targeting people of color. For yeah. Sure. I mean, what, you know, obviously it was. But, like, I, I'm, you know, ashamed to say I did not know that. Um, I also think that's probably on purpose. I don't know that. You know, that's not – I also – it's not like they teach qualified immunity in school, right? Like, I'm not taught about how, you know, you have to actively seek out that information, um, I think for a reason. Um, yeah. Um, I think it's huge and that, uh, people should be held accountable if they, if they fuck up, <laughs> especially it's such a, and, a you know, ostensibly you're here to protect the community. So you should, if you fail to do that, you should be able to be held accountable period as if that's, you know, if that's what the guy, you know, what you're, you're saying that you're there for you should that should be true you know i mean i think anything that forces them to actually face a consequence for when they do wrong is a positive um i just always worry about ways that they'll find like some other way to get around it somehow but um i'm hopeful that we'll see some type of positive change based off of this because you know, unfortunately, like you can't really depend on different institutions to do the right thing because it's the right thing. You have to have some kind of fear of a consequence. So when you have a shield or you feel like you're shielded from having to deal with it, then you're just going to keep seeing the same things happening over and over again. Right. So it's my understanding that qualified immunity is the shield, you know, that is historically been how they get off because they have this protection where they don't even with all of the, you know, body cams and evidence and fucking cold blooded murder murder on, you know, television at three o'clock in the afternoon. Qualified immunity has been the vehicle for them to escape accountability for all of this time. So, you know, with it being. Um, something that is being pressed on the New York City Police Department, which is one of the largest ones in the country, definitely is something that I think hope will have a vibration that moves um, across the country as a method uh, to kind of restore some of whatever we can with the way that we are being policed, because it's not even about relationship at this point. It's about stopping people from murdering people dead ass (laughs) that's all it's about so i am happy about this because i feel like it's kind of sets the groundwork for this work to really happen people have been on the ground really you know doing everything to shift this specific instance of the law because this this is what happens you know we all sit back and watch these cases and be like what the fuck like and we should not be surprised by any means because this is the way it's been happening but this is how 
This is the vehicle, how it's happened. So if this is something that uh, sets a model example, and I know it's going to be a rocky road, right? I'm not expecting it to end all the problems with police brutality, but it's definitely monumental in the fact that we can finally say or have a example of what possible police reform will look like um, as we move forward with trying to shift all of these things that have been, you know, making our lives um, scary and unfair and unjust because of people who police us like they have all the power in the fucking world. So um, I'm happy to report this story. And I really just hope that this sets the tone. It sets the tone. It sets the movement. It lights the fire. It gets something going because we need to see some shifts happening. We can't just be talking about this shit like something has to happen. Um, and it did. So thank you, politicians of New York who pushed this shit through. Let's get this work. Let's get this money. <laughs> All right. So we got to go ahead and roll into our final segment for today. Emily, can you grace us with the good news, please? Yeah. And on a very like good news, heavy episode, right? Definitely. You know, obviously, that's I mean, that, good, that spring coming in. Yeah. 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 All right. So just an additional like extra sprinkling of good news for the end of the episode. Um, so this story comes from a March 29th. New York Times article by Lisa Friedman and Brad Plumer titled Biden administration announces a major offshore wind plan. Um, and it's also just a short a little snippet this week. But uh, the article explains, quote, the Biden administration on Monday announced a plan to vastly expand the use of offshore wind power along the East Coast, aiming to, to tap a potentially huge new source of renewable energy that has so far struggled to gain acceptance in the United States. The plan sets a goal of deploying 30,000 megawatts of offshore wind turbines in coastal waters nationwide by 2030, enough to power 10 million homes. To help meet that target, the administration said it would accelerate permitting of projects off the Atlantic coast and prepare to open up waters near New York and New Jersey for development. The administration also plans to offer $3 billion in federal loan guarantees for offshore wind projects and invest in upgrading the nation's ports to supply wind construction. The move comes as President Biden prepares a roughly $3 trillion economic recovery package that will focus heavily on infrastructure to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and tackle climate change, an effort he has framed as a jobs initiative. Officials made a similar case on Monday, saying offshore wind deployment would create 44,000 new jobs directly in the offshore wind sector, such as building and installing turbines, as well as 33,000 new indirect jobs. Uh, so yeah, here's to moving one tick further away from climate disaster, um, from a, a sound, what sounds like a pretty comprehensive plan. Um, and yeah, I'm into it. Let's do it better than, uh, having, you know, oil leaks off the, into the oceans every 10 years, five years, whatever. Um, bring it on. Yes, that's definitely good news, man. I, I like that you keep giving me good news about this, these Biden people, man. <laughs> It feels good to find out. I feel like this is like the third good news story that you're telling me about shit that's being shifted right now. And I'm loving it. I'm like, yes. Oh, and I also want to say happy birthday to my grandmother. Oh, happy birthday, This is is the day after her birthday, but, you know, we celebrate all month. So Aries gang gang. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my... 
my friend, my, my best friend's an Aries too, and she she loves her birthday month. <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously, <laughs> uh, of course we do. I know, and happy Passover to my fellow my fellow Jews out there. Enjoy the matzah. Happy Easter. All right, guys. So I think that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day comes from an incredible ensemble called Beautiful Chorus. Uh, this group does some really dope, like, meditative healing music. Um, it's quite harmonic and acapella. Really some cool shit. You should get into it. Uh, this is their newest record, and it features India Irene. It's called I Am. I hope you enjoy it and see you next week. Bye. 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 Welcome magic and wonder brilliance and grace welcome joy satisfaction pleasure and strength welcome essence beauty presence Spirit form and space. Welcome excellence and every blessing. Sacred and praise. What I seek, I have. What I wanna know, I understand. All I wish I could, I can. Who I wanna be. Yeah.